0: Putting the scat in eschatology, it's the Drew Marshall Show.
1: Christianity could be defined as a cold case. (laughs) I can't even get through that. It makes a claim about an event from the distant past for which there is little forensic evidence. In cold case Christianity, J. Warner Wallace uses his nationally recognized skills as a homicide detective to look at the evidence and eyewitnesses behind Christian beliefs. I don't want to talk like this anymore, so I think we should bring on... Jay Warner Wallace. He's the author of Cold Case Christianity, A Homicide Detective <laughs> Investigates the Claims of the Gospels. What was that, Dragnet? Was yes, that the it was. Nicely Dragnet? done. I figured everybody's done the Who songs. So, everybody's yeah. done that, yeah. Jay Warner Wallace on the line with us. Hello there, young man. Uh, how are you today? Well, I'm bummed we didn't do the Who song. I mean, I hear that every time I go anywhere. See, into Tim, work, I, I told I you. I, I don't even know how to start. Yeah. I, okay. I guess it's me. I All told, right, you. Yes, it's, it's, I okay. told you. I told you. That's why I didn't do it. Oh yeah. Okay. You came through. Well Remember
0: Pendulette? Remember everybody plays the same song. I played some I obscure song and he was
1: thrilled. Bring up the Pendulette. Yeah, incident. my buddy Pen. Jay Warner Wallace, author of Cold Case Christianity: Homicide Detective Investigates the Claims of the Gospels. Ready? Here we go, Jim. I want to get right into this because I don't know if you know this, but I am a, I am a red letter agnostic theist. Okay. And, and one one of the reasons I, I am that is because I was forced to come up with a description of what I am by a guest we're having later on the show. Tony Campola will be here in studio. And Tony said to me one day, whoa, whoa, what are you? What, just just what are you? And so I said, I'm a red letter, right? The, the, wor- the words in the Bible that sometimes in some Bibles, every time Jesus spoke, they were in red. Those words that Jesus apparently spoke, you know, that's some good stuff to live life by, let me tell you. Um, agnostic, I don't know. I really don't. Theist, boy, this place reeks of design and a creator, and I can I could get on board with the with the hope and the possibility of there being uh, being more. What do you think of that response?
0: <laughs> oh, I think that's a great response. I Actually, I love it.
1: Um, and I, I think that I, – I mean I was
0: – I didn't become a, a Christian theist until I was 35. And you would, I would never have said I was agnostic. I mean I was very much decidedly an atheist. And everyone who knew me uh, knew that I was going to be the kind of guy who would argue with the few Christians I knew who were in law enforcement. I was working at, in, undercover at the time as an investigator. And I remember um, we, the only Christians I ever met were either uh, officers – who, if you asked them five reasons why a particular suspect was the guy we should be looking for, they could do it. They could give you those five reasons. But if you asked them five reasons why I should trust anything beyond the red letters um, in, the, in, the, in the New Testament, they would have really been uh, just tongue-tied. They wouldn't be able to like, give you any answers. And then the other group we knew that were Christians were the people who were taken to jail, because so, a lot <laughs> of those folks would tell us that they were Christians. So I was really um, not inclined to believe uh, any of it, but I did, like you were just saying— Um, about the idea of the Red Letters. I I first sat in an evangelical church for the very first time for anything other than like a wedding. Uh, I was 35. Uh, My wife wanted to go to this church. She was also not a believer, but she was more interested than me. And uh, so we went, and I'm sitting there, and the pastor pitched the Red Letters. He said, you know, this Jesus guy's smart. I mean, really smart. The smartest man who ever lived. The moral teaching of Jesus was so far ahead of his time that we're still living by it. We're still, it's the foundation for Western civilization. And I thought, here I am enforcing the laws as a police officer that he was, in a sense, arguing were grounded in the ancient red letters. So I wanted to know. Hmm. I never knew what the red letters were. I didn't have a Bible. <laughs> I, I never read them. So I went out and bought a Bible to read the red letters. I didn't know they were going to be I, – I mean I, I thought they would be like more like Proverbs, you know, like you like, like fortune cookie. Right? Sure. You'd open it up, and you'd have this wisdom teaching of – I had no idea it was going to be in a narrative – that allegedly somebody wanted me to believe, the writers wanted us to believe that stuff actually happened. And so I thought, okay, I can accept the teaching of Jesus. I'm, I'm good with that. Even if it was a fictional character, uh, I could be, I could have been good with it. But when as I started to read the accounts, I started to recognize things that you see when you read eyewitness accounts. I mean, I, I do it all the time, I do it for a living. And you'll see little attributes that bug you, and they started to bug me. So I thought, well, I'm gonna test these accounts To see if I can believe anything beyond the red letters. Hmm. And that's how I became a Christian.
1: Okay, so. Circumstantial evidence versus direct evidence. Um, direct evidence, for the most part, uh, during a trial, is those are the slam dunky kind of things, for the most part. I mean, there's obviously pushback and people will try to counter it, and the defense will try to counter things, et cetera, et cetera, and confuse the, the jury or the judge or whatever. But this uh, circumstantial evidence gets thrown around as well, you can't, you know, someone can't get convicted on circumstantial evidence. Is that true or not true?
0: okay so so you have two forms of evidence you use in criminal trials direct evidence and indirect evidence which is also known as circumstantial so you have these only these two categories well as it turns out only one thing fits in the first category the only thing that counts as direct evidence are eyewitness Eyewitness. testimonies right so unless you have an eyewitness who can tell you yeah i saw the crime and i saw who did it and that's the guy sitting over there at that table that's called a direct evidence case But if you don't have that, if you're going to use a DNA case or fingerprints or behaviors that were seen by somebody uh, related but didn't see the crime, but just some certain behaviors or things were said, all of that counts as indirect evidence. Even DNA cases, and as a matter of fact, about 85 percent of cases probably in both of our countries are entirely indirect and as a matter of fact, we have jury instructions here in the United States, and I'm sure they're, they're there too, in which judges tell juries, you are not to treat indirect evidence with any less weight than you would treat direct evidence. They are to be given the exact same weight in your deliberations. As a matter of fact, what we've got to stop saying is it's just a circumstantial case it's, because because they, they count exactly the same in terms of how they are used in deliberations. So unless you're willing to say, well, that's just a direct evidence case which nobody does, then you got to stop saying it's just a – all my cases have been entirely circumstantial. We've never lost a case. This is true for the vast majority of cases that are tried. By the way, if you've got eyewitnesses who saw who did it, most of the time the defendant takes a plea offer. I mean, he's not going to go to trial. If you're going to trial, it's because you don't have good witnesses. If you're working a cold case, it's because back in 1981 when this thing occurred, there were no eyewitnesses. That's why it went cold. So all my cases are crummy to begin with, and that's why I thought that skill set was actually helpful as I looked at Christianity.
1: Okay, so I'm not quite sure how to word this, so just bear with me, but um, I think somewhere in the recesses of my giant cavernous cranium, the thinking kind of goes like this. Tony Campolo's son, Bart, said that his dad said when he came out, he apparently said something like, look, the God that I worship, the God that I'm into, doesn't um, condemn people for bad theology. Now, that's going to right away rub a whole lot of denominationally challenged people, especially the Calvinists, so wrong. It's just going to ride them right up their backside. But what I think about is relationships and and theology and and cherry-picking scriptures and and trusting scripture and is it the inspired Word of God and how about the various translations and how it's handed down and tell me humanity didn't get in the way of that and and really what it comes down to is before I reinvest another 30 years in Jesus I would like to be fairly settled on whether there's a God or not. Now, along the way, I came, Jim, I came to the conclusion that doubt is more compatible with faith than certainty is, and that helped me exhale a little bit, but at the same time, I am not in that um, exclusivity of Jesus camp. You know, Larry King, all, every time Billy Graham came on, he said, well, uh, if I don't believe in Jesus, am I going to hell? And if, in, in uh, Billy Graham's last interview with Larry King, there's actually a question here somewhere. Uh, in the last interview with Larry King, uh, Billy Graham's answer was, all I know is that without Jesus, there's no guarantee. So I got all this stuff swirling around in my head. And what I come down to, Jim, is the lack of tangible evidence. No, not evidence. Lack of tangible interaction, dude. I hear about churches. Ooh, I interacted with God last week, and He told me this, and He said that, and I felt this, and He showed up this way. I hear about this stuff all the time. You read about it in the Bible. God showed up this way. God tangibly interacted this way. God tangibly, dude. Thirty years, tangible interaction, not a reality. Oh, come on, Marshall. You know you're just being, you're just putting demands on God. To... What do you say to me, man? I'm stuck.
0: Okay. Well, you've said a lot here. And so I take the the question about interaction. I look at it a little bit differently. Let me tell you how I look at it. I I don't have a a long uh, history with the church. I wasn't raised as a Christian. I knew no Christians growing up. I have no idea even now what's occurring in most churches. All I know is I, I, I make decisions every day professionally based on what I can determine happened in the past. And I don't have an expectation that what's going to happen in my cases is going to impact me personally today. But this is a little different. Right. So the idea here is what I've noticed is that when I'm trying to convince a juror, there are some jurors I will not impanel because I know after the voir dire process, as I'm questioning jurors, that these particular jurors, this one here, that one there, you know, to be honest, they're not open to even hearing what I have to say as a prosecutor. And by the way, the defense does the exact same thing on the other side to right. make sure that we don't impanel jurors. That if even if the evidence was to slap them in the face, they wouldn't see it, they wouldn't be interested in seeing it. And things that we would typically could, could actually have been attributed to the suspect, they would call coincidence they would in other words we would say some things hey look what that look what happened here do you see what that looks like do you see what that means and they would say ah it's a coincidence so those kinds of folks we typically will not impanel on juries and i I'm only suggestion is that there's a lot of stuff that has happened in your life, if I had a day by day, line by line, ledger of everything that's ever happened in your life, I think there'll be many places in which we will find points that you had a choice about either interpreting it as the hand of God or interpret it as a great coincidence, good luck. And so what happens (laughs) is for me, at least before I became a Christian, is I was willing to assign everything that might even wildly be interpreted as God's interaction as good luck, the good fortune, you know, the things lined up right, you know, dominoes fell a certain way. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, that there's lots of times when I've just stopped saying, well, look, what would it take if, 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 let me ask you this, if Christianity was true, Drew,
1: would you believe
0: it? Would you be a Christian? If Christianity is true, would you be That's a Christian?
1: That's a great question. Such a good question. And of course, then I would have to get into Well, what do you mean by Christianity? You tell me what— I
0: I mean, let's just go back to one thing. One thing separates this for me. I knew as I read through the Gospels, I had to deal with one thing and one thing only. Do I believe that Jesus rose from the dead? That's it. I'll tell you why I can focus on that one issue. Because that one issue is what divides Jesus from every other great, wise, ancient, theistic sage that's ever lived. Mm Mm-hmm. The thing that makes Jesus special is this. If it didn't happen, I'm out. Yeah, but no hold I on, hold on, hold on. I, 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 to- yeah, I totally get that. Another set of rules, you know, another set of obligations that come to me through some theistic system. I had no need and no desire for that. Mm-hmm. All I knew is if that thing happened, that's a game changer. So oh. all I'm asking you is yeah. if that happened, and Christianity is true because it rests on that one thing. Right historic event would you be a christian
1: so here's the thing if somebody was legit dead and then like i mean dead for three days dead and then not dead anymore that would be a huge factor in me believing but i don't think i don't think that um that we can really settle down on on enough on enough circumstantial evidence, and I've gone through this. I mean, look, dude, I was I was the apologetics guy who irritated people left, right, and center. I, I spent years at Hume Lake up in uh, Cal- in uh, Kings Canyon, California. There, and Dewey Bertolini, and all the great teachers that came through there, and all. This. And uh, I I would have to go over my notes again and go, what is it that makes me that makes me believe that it actually happened? Not that it could, because if there's a God, heck, he can raise someone from the dead. I get that moot point. If it did happen is a different thing right so
0: so again remember maybe a lot of this help was helpful for me when I came to this is I had an appropriate understanding of the role of evidence and the limits of evidence in other words right all my trials the standard of proof is not beyond a possible doubt because you'd never convict anybody but to be honest drew you'd never you don't even know that we're actually having this conversation beyond any possible doubt Really, aside from your own consciousness, there's nothing, you know, to that level of certainty, because there's always a way I could cast some, you know, for all we know, we're in the matrix right now. Yeah, yeah. We haven't taken the hell yet. Yeah. So my point is we don't operate and live at a standard that sometimes we hold theistic claims to. The standard, though, is really a little bit lower than that. Actually, it's a lot lower, and it's called beyond a reasonable doubt. So all I need to do in order to be comfortable with any belief Is to First of all, have I looked at every possible explanation, and then which of the possible explanations is the most reasonable inference from evidence? Now, at the end, I might say, well, gosh, you know, I don't like really – I wish I had more for all these explanations, but we don't get to make that choice. Instead, all we get is to arrive at which of these is the most reasonable, and you might say, well, I'd like to have more. Mm -hmm. No duh. I ask people on juries all the time. You're the kind of person who has to answer every possible doubt or have every question answered before you can render a verdict. And if someone says, yeah, you know, I think I really do have to. You're excused. I can't put you on a jury. I can't answer every question. I'll nev- I've never answered every question. I can't get you to beyond a possible doubt. I have only get, get you to beyond a reasonable doubt. Is this the most reasonable inference from evidence? Hmm. And so when I came in, I knew that I had to be realistic about what the the standard of proof, the SOP is. And it turns out the SOP is much lower. Now, I'll grant you, here's what I always think, I I wonder in my own life, and for me, even before I I made this decision to even look at this stuff, a lot of what kept me from, I I didn't want to know what the, the most reasonable inference was. I really wanted to, most people are not, as my friend Frank Turek says, we're not on a truth quest, we're on a happy quest. And we don't really care what the truth is as long as we're happy. Yeah. Yeah. So in the end I had to kind of wrestle with that as well. But but let me just tell you though, I think that that standard, the understanding of the, the realistic standard, really helped me to to wrestle through because once I, I looked at I mean I looked at every possible alternative. Did he not die was it a was it something because is it possible for some group uh, which which group i identify that could actually lie about this and carry it out as a conspiracy is it possible that maybe one of them had an experience of vision that he was influential enough to influence the others did they all have a hallucination i mean all those theories and I looked at them, you know, I guess there's some classic ways. I didn't know the field of apologetics. I mean, I literally came into this without any exposure. Somehow for 35 years I'd avoided talking to Christians, okay? And so but I didn't have any of that kind of like hanging on me. I yeah. just needed to know as an investigator, given what few skills I had as an investigator, could I go through this myself? And I got to a place where I said, hey, the Christian explanation actually explains the evidence most thoroughly, but here's the big but for me. It requires something that I reject because I was a very committed philosophical naturalist. Hmm. I rejected anything supernatural. So if you included the, I would just say, okay, I can accept the Jesus story minus the miracles, minus all the supernatural elements. Those have to be late. They have to be somehow corruptions. They have to be some, that stuff doesn't happen because I was already opposed to it philosophically. I began. Rejecting that stuff. So I really had to wrestle with my own naturalism in some ways in order to make this make this decision.
1: Okay, we are on the line with J. Warner Wallace. And uh, he is the author of this uh, fascinating book called Cold Case Christianity, A Homicide Detective Investigates the Claims of the Gospels. Uh, Jim, final question for you before we say goodbye. First of all, the website is coldcasechristianity.com, coldcasechristianity.com. The final question is, are you telling me that with the way you're wired, your brain and your experience, there is not a single thing that still bugs you or mystifies you, whether it's damnation of people to hell or whether it's what people are saying the Bible says about homosexuals or whether it's, uh, I don't know, women and ge- whatever all the things are, you know, that we we either turn our head on and go, ooh, I'm not sure I buy into that. And then therefore, what does that make the entire Bible garbage? That's what we were told. <laughs> Is there not one thing that you still go, man, I have a hard time with that?
0: Oh, my gosh. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> a couple of things. A couple of things. I mean, First of all, I, like I said, this is something we have to wrestle with, right? I mean, if you're talking about other teachings of Scripture that I'm uncomfortable with, but well, let me ask you this. Do you think, just, just go with me just as a thought experiment, if there is a God do you think that we as humans are ever going to come into points of disagreement or misunderstanding or, or awe? Of course we will. Yeah. Now, the question is, what do we do when we get to those places? Well, I can tell you one thing. If our beliefs in God are grounded as a matter of subjective opinions, I I like this because it works for me. If I'm kind of utilitarian about this or pragmatic about this, well, then, yeah, I'm going to want to jettison any time we come into a conflict because I'm really on a happy quest anyway, not a truth quest. But if, on the other hand, I discovered that there is actually good reason to believe that the God described here actually exists, that would kind of change me and actually probably incline me more willingly to bend my knee in certain areas that ordinarily I would be shaking my fist. Hmm. Now, I can tell you that that's what's going to happen. If we're going to think that there's a supernatural power, big enough, powerful enough to create everything in our universe from nothing, all space, time, matter, all the stuff we, we talk about, the reason why you're a theist, probably. If there's a God who's that powerful, and, and actually he's recorded him and given us a letter, And recorded this in scripture and really demonstrated his deity by way of the resurrection. Okay, now if that's true, I'm not suggesting right now that it is, but if that's true, well, then the next question is do we think this document we have actually reflects the words? In other words, do we think it's reliable? And that's for me. I had to make a decision. I had to kind of make it. Now, I, that's what the whole book is about. It's about looking to see is this a real life. But don't think for a second. In the end, you're going to discover a God who agrees with every single thing you believe. Because if that was the case, you'd be God. Okay? Yeah. Well, that's
1: but what we do. We actually create a God.
0: who Doesn't agree with you on every point. Then the yeah. question becomes: Well, would you be willing to bend your knee to this God?
1: Right. 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 Yeah. We actually yeah. create God in our own image.
0: Well, we do that even if we're not theists. Yeah. We Not only do we create God, we act as though we are the God in our own image. So yeah. there's no one who escapes that. There's not – the theists, you could argue, well, isn't that what Christians are doing? Well, folks, that's what I did as an atheist for 35 years. How are you doing, Jim? Doing great. How do I know? You just ask the God who would tell you, Jim, I was my only judge. So I would always say I was doing great. It's really easy to throw the dart against the wall and draw the bullseye around wherever the dart lands, okay? Yeah. Yeah. That's easy. Okay. It's harder if the bullseye is there to begin with. We don't want the bullseye. We don't. We want to just throw darts. That's just the nature of who we are. But if there is a God, the bullseye is already over there. Are you willing to live in that kind of a reality? That's the question. Now, I wouldn't do it if it's just a matter of I've just picked Christianity off the plate of possible theistic worldviews because it happens to suit my fancy. And it also happens to fit my cultural background. If that's why you're doing it, then, yeah, you're going to walk away from that. But on the other hand, it actually occurred. That is, again, the game changer.
1: Uh, Jim, I would like your next uh, few books to be uh, uh, cold case Hinduism, cold case, um, <laughs> you know, pick pick, pick one. I oh, want, I, you, want I, you to – why can't you subject your same critical thinking to other uh, monotheistic religions at least to start with? Will you do that? Okay,
0: yeah, and I've already I – did, I did it by my first my, – my only family was divided between entirely atheists and my, my stepmother, and her six kids are all Mormon. So I looked at Mormonism at the same time, not knowing if it was true or not. And I do a class at Biola where I actually ask the students to do what you just said. Take these ten principles of investigation and apply them to any historically grounded theistic worldview. No. Yeah, I got. I collect papers, you know, from these uh, these students. But yeah, I mean, I think you could apply this, to, not just to this. You could apply this to well, any a claim about anything in the distant past. These are the same principles we use in cold cases.
1: I, I think. So. No. I, I would like the same principles to be applied to marriages. This is good because there's a lot of cold cold cases there. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so, that's that's
0: true. Especially, most of my murders start off as a happy marriage.
1: I'll just tell you. <laughs> na na
0: na na that everything's going to end up that way, but if you go backwards in time from, from cold cases, they often look like our, our marriages. Oh,
1: well. Fantastic. What I really enjoyed that conversation, Jim. Thank you so much. J. Warner right. Wallace is the author of Cold Case Christianity, a homicide detective investigates the claims of the Gospels. The website, of course, is coldcasechristianity.com. Jim, thank you, sir. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Drew. Bye-bye. All right, folks, there you go. Short break and lots more coming up. Stay with us.